Morning. I had a friend who uh, introduced me some some years ago as David Roper, who uh, holds the group that he addresses in the palm of his hands. I felt pretty good about that until he went on to say that also gives you some idea of the size of the group that he normally addresses. Uh, that man didn't know it, but he's a prophet because uh, that is the size of the group that Carolyn and I have been addressing in, in recent months. It's a little little intimidating now to feed the 5,000, uh, a lot more uh, folks that we're used to talking to. We're, we're having a lot of fun with IMM, just enjoying ourselves immensely. Uh, we'll try to give a brief report in a few weeks. But uh, just to tell you, last uh, Friday night, we go Friday night, we had a dinner for 117 pastors' wives in conjunction with the women's conference here, uh, used uh, their speaker, Dee Breston, 115 women from 70 different churches around the state. And it was just a, a, just a great occasion, warm, wonderful time, opportunity to love these women and, and encourage them. Most of them stayed for the conference the next Saturday, and a lot of women came down from these smaller churches and participated in, in the conference. Boy, what a, it's so great to be associated with a church that doesn't hoard its resources. It's willing to give them away to some of these smaller churches that are less uh, richly endowed. So Carol and I just want to express appreciation to all the women that are involved in the women's ministry and Jan Nielsen and all, all the rest for what they do for our ministry and, and IMM. Now let's uh, turn to Luke chapter 22, verse uh, 47. And I want to read the entire text before I uh, begin to comment on it. Uh, to give you a bit of background, as you know, this the two events that are reported here occur right after the scene in the garden where our Lord wept, as it were, great drops of blood. Uh, wept and sweated great drops of blood. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up and a man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. Uh, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them, uh, Peter, as we know, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness prevails. Then seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest, Bianus. Uh, Peter followed at a distance, but when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Pete, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said this man was with him, but he denied it. A woman, I don't know him, he said. 
A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Uh, Luke alone of all of the gospel writers juxtaposes these two stories. All the other writers uh, place a number of intervening uh, events uh, in between the two, uh, the two episodes. Luke puts them together, I think, to make a point. He wants us to compare and contrast these two men. Uh, Judas, who betrayed the Lord. Peter, who denied him. And the point, I believe, that Luke is trying to make is that, in essence, their actions were basically the same. Now, let's talk about Judas. Uh, Luke describes him as this Judas person. That's the force of the... uh, the text, there's a note of disdain in that comment. Judas comes down to us as, as, as the arch fiend of, of history. Uh, in Dante's Inferno, he, he depicts Judas off in some corner of hell all by himself, isolated. Even the denizens of that terrible place didn't want anything to, to do with him. Awful, terrible man. Uh, the name Judas used to be a, an honored name. It's actually the Greek form of the Hebrew word Judah. Uh, Judah, as you know, was one of the patriarchs of Israel, the man through whom the line that, that led to the Messiah was drawn. So it was an honorable uh, name. Judas Maccabeus, the great Jewish uh, patriot, bore that name, as did one of the disciples, who's very carefully designated as Judas, not Iscariot, in the list of uh, of apostles. It was a good name until until Judas ruined it. Uh, but I want you to understand that Judas was no monster. Uh, he was an ordinary person, just like just like you and me, full of great potential both for good uh, and for evil. So the question is, wh- wh- where did Judas go wrong? What happened to this man? Well, to put it simply and baldly, Judas loved money. That's what drove him to betray our Lord. It was his passion. And it was also his undoing. It corrupted him because it drew his heart away from, away from God. Alexander Pope, a Pope, in one of his poems, says, uh, One master passion in the breast like Aaron's serpent swallows up all the rest. What he means by that is that whatever we love, whatever we give our hearts to, eventually consumes us. Uh, Judas fell in love with money and what money can buy, power, prestige, position. And it destroyed him in the end. There's nothing wrong with money. It's just a commodity. But there's a lot wrong with loving it. If we love it, two things begin to happen to us. The first is that our hearts are drawn away from what's good. Uh, Jesus said, if the eye is single or good, the whole body will be full of light. If the eye is evil, how great is that darkness, he says. What he meant by that is the state of the heart is determined by what 
what we focus on. If we focus on money and the things that money will buy, it will darken our hearts. We'll find ourselves compromising uh, our own our own principles. We'll get confused and conflicted. We'll make bad decisions that defy logic and deny the values that we ourselves uh, hold dear. We'll do anything to make a buck, as we say. Cut corners. Do illegal things. And our hearts become corrupted. The light goes out. And as Jesus, Jesus put it, how great is that, that darkness. Paul says the same thing in First Timothy. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. The love of money, he says, is the root of all kinds of evils. Not money. Mark, mark that. It's the love of money. So that's the first thing that happens to us if we... If we have a fascination and affection for money, it will draw our hearts away from good. We'll compromise ourselves morally. The second thing it does is draws our hearts away from God. Jesus says you can't serve God and man. You'll hate the one and love the other. You'll despise the one and be devoted to to the other. You cannot serve God in materialism, he says. He doesn't say you shouldn't. He says you can't. It's impossible. Because you're... Fascination and affection with money will draw your heart away from God. You'll stop being being fascinated and devoted to God. The love of money deprives us. We, we lose our vision of God and that, that wonderful sense of intimacy with Him. And in the end, we may turn away. Now, Judas is a, just a prime example of what happens to you when you're devoted to to mammon. It speaks to all of us. Now let's talk about this Judas person. He's interesting, and I know there are a lot of questions that were raised in the growth groups this past week about Judas, his, his fate, his destiny, and, and I can't hope to answer all of them this morning, but uh, uh, let's, let's uh, take a look at this character and see what, what we can discover. Uh, some authorities believe that, that Judas' surname, Iscariot, is taken from a, a Greek term Scariates, that actually it's a Latin term, Roman term, that uh, was used to describe little short daggers that assassins carried. And there were a group of, uh, of men, zealots, uh, patriots, underground patriots in Israel. They carried these, these little daggers and they assassinated uh, Roman officials. They were, they were uh, radicals. And uh, some say, well, Judas was a scariatus. I, I don't think so. I think Judas was a very centered person. He didn't make any waves. He just blended in. He, he was, as we would say today, a good old boy. He, he was nice. Now, let me tell you something. Nice is not nice. Uh, nice is, can be sinful. Uh, Leo de Rocher said, nice guys finish last. Actually, he was right. They do. One of my struggles over the years as a Christian is that I'm a nice guy. That's the position I took in our family as I was growing up. I wasn't going to make any waves. I wasn't going to cause any problems. I was just going to go along, tell everybody what they wanted to hear. And so I, 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 I'm nice. I, I don't cause trouble. But, but that's not nice. I've struggled with that for 63 years. C.S. Lewis said, God is not in the business of making nice people. He's in the business of making new people. 
But Judas was a nice guy. He just he blended in. He did everything right. He went along with the crowd. You know, it's very interesting to me that when our Lord was in the upper room and he announced the fact that someone would betray him, no one in that room knew who he was talking about. Which tells me that Judas pulled off the pose perfectly. They, they could not identify the betrayer. He, he was as good as they come. Now, what, what do we know of Judas and his actual origins? Well, very little, but we can piece things together. I think his surname, Iscariot, actually means a man of Kerioth. Ish, the Hebrew word for man, Kerioth. Kerioth's a little city just south of Jerusalem, about 25 miles out in the sticks. A little backcountry community. That's where Judas grew up. Uh, I think Judas was one of those bright, ambitious young men, probably had a good head for numbers, did well in school, never caused any problems, probably voted by his classmates when he was uh, graduating from high school as most, most likely to succeed. Everybody liked Judas. Uh, I think he was also most likely to leave town as soon as possible. You know, these little towns... Uh, Bright young men don't last very long. They go to the big city, and I think that's what happened to Judas. He went to Jerusalem, and it was there that he came in contact with Jesus. He began to follow him. He became a camp follower in the sense that he listened to his words, and he got involved in, in, in the crowd, and uh, he attended uh, when Jesus spoke. He took it all in, and it came to him after a while, this man's going someplace, and he's going to make me rich and famous. And so he joined up. He actually became an apostle. Uh, He occurs in all the lists of the apostles. He's always mentioned last, but he's there in all all the lists. And he became the treasure of the apostles. Now, I don't know if our Lord appointed him or he was elected by the other apostles or he he offered. I don't know how he got to be treasurer, but he was the one that carried the money back. And perhaps our Lord gave him that opportunity to take a look at himself. There's nothing like tests of that nature to open our seams. Uh, God has never tested me by giving me a lot of money. I'm, frankly, I'm, I'm thankful, but some of you, for some of you, that's not true. God has given you a lot of money. So the question is, what, what is it doing to your heart? God permits these things to happen so we can see ourselves as we really are, take note of who we are, and, and, and come to our Lord for forgiveness, and for cleansing, and deliverance from the grip that mammon has on us. But in any case, what happened to Judas is that he he started dipping into the till. He had sticky fingers. He started skimming off the the proceeds, the the gifts that were given to our Lord and his disciples. And and, and you know what happens when when you start sinning. At first, it's just a little bit, and then there's more and more and more. And we don't take these quantum leaps into sin generally. We integrate into it. Uh, It's by increments that we sin more and more until Judas found himself an embezzler, a big-time thief. Uh, There's that incident that uh, is recorded in the Gospels when uh, that that dear woman came into our Lord's presence and broke that vial of perfume over his head worth probably twenty to $25,000, a lot of money. And uh, Judas... 
protested. He said, this could have been given to the poor. And in case you feel, uh, you know, get incensed to Judas, the other disciples chimed in. They didn't like it either. John, with the advantage of, of hindsight, said of Judas, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he saw that 25000 going into his pockets. And when our Lord permitted her to lavish her love on him like that, he saw that money trickle through his fingers and it outraged him. And our Lord rebuked the disciples at that point. And I think for myself, that was the turning point for Judas. He saw that if he followed the Lord, the, the era in which he could accumulate was over. So he had to make something out of this deal. He had to profit from it. So he went to the chief priests and he haggled with them for uh, the, the amount that they gave him for the betrayals. Interesting, the word that's used actually means to barter or to haggle. Uh, Judas offered to betray our Lord for one price. They made a counteroffer. He made another offer. And Judas is always working the angles, trying to get the best possible deal. And they finally settled on 30 pieces of silver with which he was to betray our Lord. And, and then he went out, and the Passover plot was in motion. Now, one of the questions that I'm, I'm often asked, and perhaps you discussed it this week, is was Judas a believer? No. No, he was not. Uh, he was an opportunist. That's all. He just followed the Lord for what he could get out of it. But he had a very hard heart. And he really had no interest in obeying. You know, it's possible to look very good for a long, long time, to be very nice, to fit in, to blend in be a part of the body, to teach uh, Sunday school classes, to be, parts, be a part of an official board, to be engaged in Christian service and ministry, perhaps even to be a missionary, and never give your heart fully to Jesus. It's possible to do so. Judas pulled it off for a long period of time. See, again, in the upper room, again, it's striking to me that, that no one could identify Judas. He so perfectly played the role of a Christian. But way down deep inside, there was this area of holdout. See, I think I know when, when I'm holding out. And we're not talking about those issues over which we struggle, sins that we have a difficult time dealing with. We want to, to, we want to deal with them, but we're, we're having a hard time of it. We're talking about a, an area of resistance, a hard heart that will not submit and our Lord says to us over and over again, I want you to give this to me, and we will not do it. I have a friend who describes becoming a Christian very much like becoming a Marine. Those of you that have been in the Corps will appreciate this. You go down to the recruiting, uh, to the recruiting office and you sign up. Sign your name at the bottom of the contract, and they start filling it in from that point on. You don't have any idea what it means to be in the Corps. But you begin to find out right away. You discover when you go to boot camp that you've got DIs in your face all day and you're up at 4 o'clock in the morning running 20 miles and doing PT and, and it gets worse rather than better. And it, if you go over the hill at that point, it just shows you never wanted to be a Marine. You like the snazzy dress blues. You like the mystique and the grand tradition of the Corps. But you never wanted to be a Marine. Now that's what you find in Judas. And that's what our Lord finds in others. They look like Christians. They look very good. But down inside, 
There's no real commitment to obedience. Now, we're not talking about sin and failure. Everybody sins and fails. We're talking about an area of resistance that you or I will not yield to Christ. And with Judas, it was money. He would not stop loving his money. Now, Judas had numerous opportunities to respond to our Lord's love. Our Lord just kept loving him. Even in the upper room, as you know, he didn't betray the betrayer. Uh, The conversation that he had with Judas, or John was involved, but no one else in the room knew that Judas was the betrayer. Uh, It tells me again that, that our Lord never treated Judas in any way different than the other apostles. He just loved him and was his friend, walked beside him, tried to encourage him back. You know, Judas sat there while our Lord taught the word and while he loved people and he hugged lepers and, and he performed miracles and he raised the dead and he healed the sick. And, and he was involved in that conversation with the rich young ruler. He took all that in. But he was impervious to our Lord's love. It was all lost on Judas. And, and finally in the end, and, and that scene in the upper room, you know, our Lord... John said, uh, who is it? And uh, Jesus took the little piece of bread and dipped it in the, the dish that contained portions of the Paschal Lamb. And everybody in that room knew exactly what, what the symbolism of that event mean, meant. And he dipped the little piece of bread in there and he handed it to Judas. He was reaching out again to Judas. And Judas took it and ate it indifferently. And our Lord said to him, what you have to do, go and do quickly. And Judas got up and at that point, we're told that Satan entered into him and he went out. John says, probably the most poignant phrase in the New Testament, it was dark. And the darkness entered into his soul. He went back to the chief priests and he consummated the, uh, the, the arrangement that he had, had made to identify Jesus with a kiss. And he went down to the Garden of Gethsemane and, and he kissed our Lord. And then shortly afterward, he, he realized he had gone wrong. Now, I don't know what triggered that remorse. It was not repentance. The word that's used in the Gospels is not the word for repentance. It's remorse. He was overwhelmed by shame and the disgrace of it. But it was not repentance. Now I think what, this is just my opinion, but I think what triggered in Judas was what our Lord said to him. That gentle response as Judas uh, betrayed him with that treacherous kiss. Our Lord said, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He could have said, you betray me, but he used his title. Son of Man is a messianic title. It comes from the book of Daniel. And uh, I think at that point the coin dropped. Judas realized that he had betrayed Israel's Messiah. And he went out and hung himself. He committed suicide. I tried to give the money back. They treated him contemptuously, as people always do, traitors. You know, even those that profit from, from treachery have no use for traitors. Tried to give the money back. They wouldn't accept it, so he went out and killed himself. Now, let me, let me answer a couple of other questions. Could Judas, did Judas repent? No, I don't think he did. There's no indication that he ever did. He's described by one of the writers as the son of perdition. Perdition is the opposite of salvation. He did not repent. Uh... Calvin says that he did not because he believed that God 
was a judge. That could be true, but I'm inclined to think that underlying whatever reasons Judas had was that hard, unyielding, resistant heart. You see, our Lord would, but Judas would not. Not could not, would not. To the very end, he would not soften his heart and preferred his goal to God. Uh, C.S. Lewis has, has observed that hell ultimately is a provision of God's love. He lets people have what they want. If they want to live with their money and they want to absent themselves from God, he lets them have what they want. So they go off into eternal existence without the presence and power of God. God's the one that makes everything worthwhile. Nothing worthwhile in hell. And the reason is because God is not there. And the reason he's not there is because nobody wants him there. It's in hell. So to the end, Judas preferred his, his money to the Lord of glory. I don't think he ever repented. Could he have repented? Oh, you bet your life he could. Given what we know of our Lord's largesse and his grace, he would have taken him back. Even after our Lord was crucified and had risen again, Judas could have come back, fallen at our Lord's feet, asked for his forgiveness, and received it. He could have taken the forgiveness he needed. And you know what it needed. And you know what our Lord would have done? He would have grabbed Judas by the shoulders, lifted him to his feet, hugged him, and returned that kiss. George MacDonald tells uh, the most wonderful little story called the flight of a of the sparrow of a swallow. Oh no, flight of the sparrow, excuse me. And uh, it's about a little girl who was taken from her home and put in the home of an of an uncle. Uh, and uh, he had this uh, private collection of treasures and things that he had amassed over the years. And they were in, in his office. And he, he told her not to go in there. They were breakable. And, uh, she, she needed to stay out of that room. And, of course, you know what happens to children when you tell them they can't do something. She wanted to go to that room. One day while he was absent, she went into the room and she got into all of his things and, and actually broke something and tried to repair it and couldn't. So she put it away and she thought that you know, he would never know. But then... Because she had a very sensitive heart, she began to be overwhelmed by guilt, and she was just crushed by this load of, uh, this, the, by the weight of her own guilt. And one night, she came into her father, her, her uncle's room, and he was lying there on his bed, and she threw herself down beside the bed, and she told her uncle what she had done, and she said, Uncle, I'm just, I just feel so guilty. Kill me! Kill me, please! Will you kill me? And uh, he got up and he threw his arms around her and drew her in close. And he said, I will, I will, like this, like this. And he began to cover her face with kisses. And George MacDonald says, makes this comment on what I think of as God's avuncular, uncle-like love. He says, we are killed by the kisses of God. Oh, I love that. We are killed by the kisses of God. Now that's Judas. Now let's look at Peter. Quick to die, quick to deny. Peter's my kind of man. I, I just love this guy. Uh, kind of man that you'd want to walk down a dark alley with late, late at night. Tough guy. Uh, commercial fisherman. Fished on one of the most dangerous inland seas in the world at that time, Sea of Galilee. He looked death in the face every day. He had that same kind of calm, composure, and and, and fearlessness that people have and uh, men and women that live on the edge all the time. Uh, 
it struck me this last week as I was reading some of the context of this passage, and you, you come to that, uh, the event that happened a couple of, of days before, or a couple of hours before, where Jesus was alerting the disciples to the fact that there was trouble ahead, and he said, sell your cloaks and buy a, buy a sword. And they said, well, we already have a couple of swords. And Jesus said, well, that's enough. And uh, it struck me, we know Peter had one sword, but it occurred to me that I think Peter packed them both. Uh, slung low on his hips and tied down, and he was ready. And we know he was because of the, uh, the incident that took place in the garden when the Roman cohort came to take our Lord prisoner, and out came the swords. And, you know, arguably he could have worked on his swordsmanship a little bit. He uh, whiffed, but he caught an ear. But, but, you know, his heart was in it. I mean, he was willing to go to the wall for his Lord. Uh, a Roman cohort would be at least a hundred and maybe more. Now, we don't know if it was just a portion of that cohort of the whole, but I mean, this was a man that was willing to take on a mob uh, for the sake of, of his Lord. Now, you might think this was his finest hour, but it wasn't. Let me tell you, his finest hour was not the hour when he attempted to defend his Lord, but his finest hour was his great denial because that was the making of this man. Looks very candid about Peter's failure. doesn't mention him here. John does, other gospel writer. When we know it was Peter. Peter would not want us to cover up this fact because there are two things that he would want us to know. One, he wants us to know how dangerous our strengths are. And secondly, he would want us to know how gracious our Lord is in our falls as well as in our successes. Now, uh, at the arrest, after our Lord was arrested, his disciples fled. Peter among Zachariah said, the shepherd is smitten, the sheep are scattered. Uh, two of the sheep, however, John and our friend Peter, pulled themselves together. And uh, they trailed this mob up to Anna's house, which is on this, probably on the south end of the city of David. A little promontory there in there's a mansion, and there's a courtyard out in front. And uh, John went on in because he was a friend of the high priest. Peter was left outside. John began to look around for him, couldn't find his friend, so he went outside, found Peter lingering beside the door. Talked to the young woman who handled the little wicket gate, the little gate that was inside the larger gate, and he let Peter in. John retired into the, into the shadows. Peter went right to the middle of the action. A little charcoal fire there. Here were some of the soldiers and friends and family and all enemies of Jesus gathered around this fire. And Peter just shoulders his way right in, right into the midst. And they were probably almost certainly talking about the events of that night. And, uh, Peter entered in. We know he was talking because later they identify him by, by his accent. He was acting like he was one of them. See? Well, it's this young woman... Uh, spots him across the fire. And Luke uses a word that means to stare. She stared at him. She couldn't believe that Peter would be identified with this uh, group that had taken Jesus captive. Seemed so incongruous. So she called him. She said, you're one of them. Peter says, not I. I don't even know the man. Uh, things got a little tense, so he walked away. And... Uh, went off into the, one of the porticos and he was standing there and uh, the cock crowed. 
should have been a warning to Peter. He, he, he missed it. And uh, here, here was a, a, another woman who spoke to a male companion of hers who said to Jesus, Oh, I, I know, you're one of them. Peter not I. I don't know who he is. Then he moved back toward the fire. Luke says about an hour later, he's gathered here again in the circle, you know, experiencing the warmth of the group and the warmth of the fire. And uh, some man says, I, you have a Galilean accent. I know you were with him, Jesus. And Peter began to swear. He was a fisherman. He knew how to swear. He said, I don't know the man. Never heard of him. And two things happened simultaneously. The cock crowed, as Jesus had told him it would. And our Lord happened to be led from Annas. At that point, he was being led from Annas' house off to Caiaphas' house. That was where the kangaroo court was going next. And as he passed through the courtyard, he turned and he looked at Peter. There was this lingering look of love and sorrow and affection, and it broke Peter's Heart. He began to sob. And he raced out of that courtyard, tradition tells us. He ran through the dark streets of Jerusalem, down through the Kidron Valley, up into the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. And he, he fell in that very spot where our Lord had trampled the, the, the grass as he had prayed that evening. And he sobbed out his heart before the Lord. Now, uh, Peter had been warned. If you go back a few verses, verse 31 of chapter 22, our Lord said to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. It's interesting that he uses the word Simon rather than Peter, because that's his given name, which our Lord used when he wanted to underscore Peter's limitations and his weakness. He said, I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Peter replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to, to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny three times that you know me. Did Peter mean it when he said he was willing to go to the wall for his master? Absolutely he did. But his grief and his weariness, his natural desire to protect himself and to be included in got the best of him. And he collapsed. I mean, who would have dreamed that the rock man would become such a wimp? You know why? Because he believed too much in himself. The worst thing about us is our strength. God fears it. And so should we. Paul says we are weak in him. That's not pious palaver. That's an important principle. Uh, Don't agree with much that Gertrude Stein has said, but one of her statements about men sticks with me. She says, men are afraid to be afraid. And she's absolutely right. We always have to look strong. We have to always be on top of things. We cannot admit that we're weak. And that was Peter's problem. Peter, you're going to deny me. Not me. All these other guys, that's what he said in Mark, all these others, they're going to deny Not me. But when push came to shove, He became a blustering coward. God fears our strength. And so should we. And what God does, bless his heart, is when we feel adequate, he humbles us. He has his own way of humiliating us. 
to bring us to the end of ourselves so we realize that it's where we're weak that we're strong. My favorite poet, Carolyn Roper, has written a poem. Lord, I start so strong saying anywhere and I try to war and defend you with sharpness and steel. But Lord, I merely maim and wound you alone can heal. And then bewildered in the mess, I start denying all confused. But Lord, that crowing in the night has jerked my spirit to attention. And now I know you knew it then. I'm weak, inept, cowardly, betraying, dust, guilty, just like him. O Lord, compassionate in healing, you prayed then, and now I turn in humble weakness and in faith to worship you, and then to strengthen them. Hallowed be thy name. It's when we're weak that we're strong. Now, lesson number two uh, is that our Lord walks with us through our failure. George MacDonald says that... That Jesus always keeps his foolish disciples close to his side because he knows that we would never learn anything if he shunned us. See, our Lord kept Peter by us. Even that, that look of lingering love was just a demonstration of his care and concern for Peter. Two things Peter had going for him. You know, if, if you didn't know Peter well, if you didn't have the rest of the New Testament, you might think he's a very superficial person. But he had a singular grace that redeemed his life. It's what saved him from his naturally wayward, uh, willful uh, uh, desires. It was that passionate love for Jesus and a profound hunger to obey him no matter what. You got a lot of things wrong, but our Lord saw his heart. Uh, Jesus knew that Peter loved him. You know, that wonderful sequence at, at the end where Peter and the other disciples around the fire, and as an echo of that threefold denial, our Lord three times asked Peter, Do you love me? And, and, and finally at the end says, Lord, you know all things. You know my heart. You know that I love you. And for all of his blundering, for all of his foolish mistakes, he had this this profound passion and love for his Savior. Let me tell you, sin's not the worst thing in the world. The worst thing in heaven and earth is a cold, hard heart. And you could never say that was true of Peter. He loved his Lord passionately. The second thing that saved Peter is that Peter knew that Jesus loved him. He knew he could come again and again and again and again and take whatever forgiveness he needed. There's a country western song out today. Some of you may have heard it. It has a recurring chorus in it. Fathers don't just love their children now and then. They love them forever and ever. Amen. And uh, it tells a story. Uh, it starts out with uh, this, the, the man who sings the song or who wrote the song coming to his father. He's a very mischievous little boy. He's behaved badly. And his father sits him down. And he says, fathers don't just love their children now and then. Fathers love them forever and ever. Amen. And then the next chorus, uh, the man has grown up and his boy is giving him grief. And he sits the boy down and he says the same thing. Fathers don't just love their children now and then. They love them forever and ever. Amen. And then he, he, he ends up in front of the gates of heaven. And he's wondering about his own heart and the things that he's done. 
And he hears this voice from within saying, Fathers don't just love their children now and then. They love them forever and ever. Amen. If you're one of God's children, if you're giving your heart to Him, despite your struggles and your failures, He loves you forever and ever. Amen. You'll never stop loving. You can always come back and receive whatever forgiveness you need. Carolyn and I were talking about this, uh, these, these two characters this past week, and she made what I think is a very, uh, is a very insightful comment. She said, uh, one of the differences between Peter and Judas is that Peter never gave up. The Judas gave up. He, he could have come back to the Lord, but he didn't. As long as there's life, there's hope. You think there's a church father who said that Jesus was far more saddened by Jesus by Judas' suicide than he was by his betrayal, because his suicide put an end to to our Lord's efforts to to draw him back in. See? He gave up, took his life. As long as there's life, there's hope. And uh, when Judas killed himself, there was no longer any hope. As long as you're alive, there's hope. It doesn't matter how much you've shamed yourself or shamed others. There's hope you can come again and again and again to our Lord and find forgiveness. C.S. Lewis said, No amount of falls will undo us if we keep picking ourselves up each time. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. The only fatal thing, he says, is to give up. Don't give up. Godly odds that there's some people here, maybe more than one, who have thought this week about taking, taking your life. I'm not, uh, I'm not a prophet, but the law of averages would demand it. Someone here has thought very seriously about taking his or her life. Please don't do it. You may have shamed yourself immensely. You may have shamed your family. And you've thought, it's hopeless. I'm going to give up. I can't go on, but you can. You can. You can come back. The only fatal thing is to give up. If you come back, our Lord will receive you as He received Peter and as He would have received Judas if He had returned. You know, I think if Judas had come back, he, you know, he, he would have been restored. And not only restored, he would have been given a great ministry. The other apostles went all over the world preaching the gospel. Uh, Judas would have been given one one segment of the world, perhaps, to, to evangelize. And he would have gone down in, in history as this wonderful monument to God's forgiveness and grace. The betrayer came back. Uh, but he didn't come back. He lost it all. Peter came back. And as, as Jesus said to Peter, Peter, when you come back, strengthen your brothers. And Peter did it. When too many days after this, Peter stood before the, the whole nation, or at least the nation that was assembled at Jerusalem, and he said, you disown the prince of life. And he uses the very word that's used of his denial. But he said there's a way back. Peter had experienced it. So can you. Peter went on to preach and, and uh, to lead and to become the most distinguished of all the, the apostles. His name comes down to us through history as, as a man who was restored to usefulness. He wrote those wonderful books that we read that remind us that, 
that the only way to grow is, is through grace and that there is forgiveness that's available to us. He does continue to strengthen his brothers. And you may think you, you've wasted your life. You've ruined it. It's all over. God can never use you again. It's not true. You can come to him, receive what forgiveness you need, and not only can you go on and enjoy that forgiveness, you can be used to strengthen your brothers. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed when we think of that measure of forgiveness. Lord, give us, give us the courage to, uh, to deal with those areas of resistance in our life, to bring them to you for your healing, your forgiveness, your cleansing, your strength that enables us to begin to, to, begin to deal with these issues and do something about them. Rid us of this idea, Lord, that we, that we have so wasted ourselves that we have nothing left to give. You want us simply to give, give our hearts to you so you can make something of them. Take them. Mold them. Make them what you want them to be. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.